Well, we're getting back to a series today uh, called The Judges. We spent the first part of the summer looking at it, and uh, now we're looking at the uh, kind of the second half, the back stretch of this series, if you will. And we were supposed to actually have this sermon last week, but we postponed it a week so we could talk about the issue of same-sex marriage, which came up in a big way in our country. Uh, if you're interested in hearing what was said about that, you can, uh, we can get you a CD, or you can just go online at cypressstreet.org slash listen, or just go to cypressstreet.org and click the little button that says listen to messages, and you can find the one titled same-sex marriage from last week and, and listen to it. If you've got a, a friend that you feel like is wrestling with that issue, uh, or you'd like them to hear kind of a biblical perspective on it, send them to that message, and, and uh, they can take a listen on there anytime. It'll be up there a while. But we're getting back to this series. I, you know, I thought about calling it, I told you, Judges in June and July, the Triple J series, you know, but it's a good thing we didn't because postponing it a week, we're just, we're going to end up in August too, and that doesn't work the same, JJ, JA. So it uh, wouldn't have been exciting at all. So it's a good thing we just went with the Judges. This is based on a book of the Bible that's early on in the Old Testament. Uh, just to place it in context for you, this comes. After creation, when God made everything, after the fall of man, when, when people said, God, we reject your ways for our own ways. This comes after God spoke to Abraham and said, through you I'm going to raise up a people that's going to show, the plan is for them to show people what it is like to be the people of God and ultimately to save all the nations. This comes after those people... Abraham's descendants were enslaved by Egypt. This comes after Moses was used by God to deliver the people from Egypt. And then this comes after Joshua leading them into the land God had promised to their ancestor Abraham. And you know that perhaps the stories of like the Battle of Jericho where they marched around the city and the walls came down and, and all that took place with Joshua. And the book of Judges begins by saying... When Joshua and all the elders with him had passed away, there was left a generation that didn't appreciate God. They weren't there to see the wonders. They had heard about Him, but they hadn't seen Him with their own eyes. And these faithless or less faithful generations kicked off what we've been calling the Judges Cycle that looks like this. First, the people would rebel against God. And they would begin to worship the idols of the nations around. Then God would say, okay, if you want other gods instead of me, I'll hand you over to that. And we'll see how that works out for you. And inevitably, the people would become oppressed by various city-states and kingdoms around them. And again, enslaved and oppressed and when things got really bad, they'd call out on God, to God and they'd say, you know, save us. Aren't you our God? And so God would send and raise up a deliverer who were called judges. And so these are the accounts of the various judges that were raised up by God in response to the people's repentance. And he would send this judge, deliver them, and they would, it says, you know, remain more faithful while that judge was alive but when that judge would pass away the next generation would fall into the same cycle this book is, is riddled with 
violence and trouble and darkness. If you read on to the last pages where it doesn't even really talk about a particular judge, it just talks about some stories of what life was like in that era. And it's a evil and a dark time. We have to realize and place in context that this was a very different culture than ours. We have to realize that uh, the Ten Commandments were still relatively new at that time and belonged to Israel and not to the other nations. It was a world in which much depravity and perversion existed. When you read the accounts of the things that God told Israel, here's the things I don't want you to do. These are the things that the people do in the land where you're going, but you're not to do it that way. And you read it and it's eyebrow-raising stuff to think that humanity would stoop so low. These were very interesting times and these were very flawed people whom God was using. I loved the thought that I shared with you from a a current New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright. He's a biblical scholar that's respected in our day and and he's shared how when God chose to work through Abraham, he chose to work through flawed people. And when you look down through the, the Bible, you see him using people that are far from perfect. And even events that are far from perfect. To bring things forward in accordance with his will and his plan. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes. And perhaps you or someone you know has struggled with making sense of how all that works. And you know, Wright says, when we make sense of the cross then we'll understand the rest. When we understand how somehow the most wicked thing that humanity did was also the most loving thing that God did, then somehow we'll maybe understand all the rest of the things that make us scratch our heads. And that may be never in this life at least. But even in these ancient stories from ancient times that seem so foreign to us, that sometimes make us scratch our heads and wonder how it all fits together. Even here, we find lessons and truths, spiritual truths that we can apply in our lives here thousands of years later. And today, as we begin to look at Gideon, uh, this will be no exception. And we'll actually look at Gideon for two weeks. Next week, maybe we'll get into some of the story of Gideon that perhaps you're more familiar with. If you've heard of Gideon uh, maybe you know kind of the story of, of how the, the miraculous that took place as he with just a handful of men defeated a, a huge army. We'll get into that next week. But this week we'll look at something that I think is less often examined or talked about in church and yet it's an important, an important prequel to the story that many of us know about Gideon. And so we'll look at that today. When I was a worship pastor in Springfield, Missouri, uh, I was getting ready to teach a new song to our church. It was called Like Incense. And it, it said, May my prayers like incense rise before you. And it kind of had just this haunting minor, it's beautiful. And Julie had this great violin thing she did with it. And we loved the song. And I thought, you know, there's so much richness to that imagery of our prayers rising like incense to God that's taken straight from scripture and I thought wouldn't it be neat to have incense on the stage you know people could smell it and see it and and just kind of experience what we're singing 
I thought that'd be really neat. So I thought, well, I'll go to the Catholic store. Because the Catholics, they use incense, right? If you've ever been to a Catholic service, uh, you know, I've been to one and he was swinging the little lantern thing and the, you know, incense is going everywhere. And I thought, those folks know incense. So I headed down to the Catholic supply store in town. And I told her what I was looking for. And she led me to their selection. And when I saw the price tag, <laughs> I said, I don't think this is what I'm looking for. For one thing, it was a lot more than we needed for just a service or two. And also, you had for their kind of incense, you have to have a container, which apparently has to be like pure gold or something. <laughs> so you have the expensive container and the expensive incense. And I'm like, I just don't need anything this fancy, I told the lady. And she said, well, why don't you go down to this store down the road called Renaissance? I said, okay. It's recommended by the Catholics. Can't be all that bad. So, headed over to the Renaissance store. I walked in. And first, you know, at the door, there's this sign that says that there was a medium that worked there. It could also, I mean, she kind of was a one and all. She could, I guess, a medium slash, you know, the card readers, you know, that tells you your fortunes and all that kind of stuff. She did it all. And uh, she worked there. Interesting. Didn't figure she'd probably be there at that moment. I was wrong. Walked on in and uh, lining these shelves were all sorts of little shrines and idols of pagan gods and goddesses. And I thought, have I stepped back in time somehow? I mean, I didn't know they still made those things, you know? I mean, aren't we like enlightened now to know that this little goddess can't be worshipped I mean it's just a figurine don't we understand that by now and I was surprised by that and as I shuffled my way back to the incense section I, I heard someone talking and I thought they were playing a video and it turned out that was the medium so I'm speeding up my process here <laughs> I'm ready to get out of this crazy store it's like ancient pagan times I've stepped back into and and they found some incense sticks that said frankincense. And I said, that's in the Bible. I grabbed that one. <laughs> and then I needed something to hold the little stick with. And all they had were ones with moons and stars on them. And I thought, well, I can paint over that. No big deal. So I grabbed a couple of those, headed to the counter. And I'm waiting to check out as all these idols are looking down at me. And I pull out my church credit card. And I think, nah. <laughs> we wouldn't want some sort of like pagan demon to possess the church's account. I'll use my card. And uh, <laughs> we'll take the risk on our account. Oh. Because, I mean, it just felt so strange because idolatry is a thing of the past, right? And yet... I would suggest to you, no, it's not. And in fact, today's idolatry, I would say, is more dangerous than idolatry of the past. Because in the past, it had a face and a name to it. It was easy to say, okay, we serve God, the invisible God, the one true God, not this graven image. But in our day, the idols are faceless. The gods of old were, you know, the gods of agriculture or whatever your economy was at the time. And you'd worship that god 
so that you could find prosperity, so that you could find wealth and security. In those times, the ancient gods were um, the gods of fertility and sensual pleasures. And you'd, the poor folks that had to worship those gods, they would trudge down to the brothel, I mean the temple, and they'd find a, a, prostit- I mean a, a priest or a priestess with whom to worship. <laughs> huh. The gods of that day were also the gods of war, whom you'd worship if you wanted to lord it over another nation, if you wanted plunder and power, riches, glory. But nobody today cares about riches or wealth, do they? Nobody today is concerned about power or lording it over anybody else. Nobody today has a problem with sensual pleasures. No one's addicted to pornography, right? No one's, there's no such thing as a multi-billion dollar sex trade in this world. Right. That's what I mean. Idolatry is still alive and well today. It just doesn't wear the faces. It doesn't have the graven images to go along with it for most of us. In our culture. But it's still an issue. And sometimes idolatry invades the church. Sometimes idolatry invades God's people. As we'll see in this passage of scripture that we read a few moments ago. First thing we see is that, just like that cycle we just looked at, the people, once again, it tells us, did evil in the eyes, not the yes, of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. What we read in there was that they would come and just, it sounded like, just wipe out their crops just for the fun of it. You know, they'd spend all year working up on these crops that were going to be what would sustain them for the next year and Midian would just come through and burn them down. It wouldn't take very many years of that (laughs) to leave you in pretty bad shape, would it? And we're told that then they cried out to God and God raised up a deliverer. Says he sent a prophet to remind the people you know this is happening because you keep rejecting me and then he goes that says the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon to inform him that he's the next man up <laughs> he's the next guy that God's choosing for the job and look at what Gideon's response is he says but Lord how can I save Israel my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. Now Manasseh is one of the tribes of Israel. And Gideon says he's the least in his family. And his family is the weakest in Manasseh. And Manasseh is not even the strongest of the tribes. Or the most highly thought of. This reminds me so much of really the last two judges we looked at. But especially the first one, Ehud. And if you were here for that week, we talked about how God uses unexpected people to do unbelievable things. If you ever think yourself not good enough, 
to be a Christian. Not good enough to be used by God. That you have something wrong with you that keeps you from being worth much to God. Go back and listen to that message about Ehud. And we saw the same thing in Deborah, didn't we? A, a woman in a, in a culture where women were not considered to be leaders, where their opinion was not highly sought after, and yet God raises up Deborah. And here we have Gideon. So often we think highly of him because, again, we just hear that one snippet of a story, the great story of Gideon, the great warrior. And yet, he was one of the least to be expected. Took him off guard. And when Gideon realizes who he's talking to, he kind of has like a, a Moses moment, you know, where he realizes he's on holy ground kind of a thing. Or you might compare it to, uh, you know, if you've seen, if you like Disney movies, you know, there's the whole beginning of Aladdin where he meets Jasmine and they're having a good time and then he realizes she's the princess. He's like, oh my goodness, that was the princess. And yes, I just drew a, a comparison between Gideon and God and Aladdin and Jasmine. So <laughs> we have reached a new depth today. Okay. <laughs> but he has this moment and his response is to worship. And he builds an altar right there and he worships God. It's the right response. But God comes back to him. And he says this. Now I want you to tear down your father's altar to Baal. And cut down the Asherah pole beside it. And then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down offer the second bull as a burnt offering and the first thing that catches your eye is okay, Baal, Asherah, idols gods of that day and it says these things belong to who? God's chosen instrument's dad <laughs> So we're not talking about their Canaanite neighbors, their pagan neighbors. We're talking about in Israel, in this family that God is choosing to use to help deliver Israel, there is idol worship taking place. On their property, his father has built this altar to Baal and this Asherah pole. Now Baal would have been you know, one of the gods of prosperity. In their culture it might have been god of agriculture, something like that, that they would worship for prosperity and that sort of thing. Asherah was more about sensual things. And so there's these two idols. That's a, a Baal on the left, and that's an Asherah on the right. And it says, God tells him, tear it down and then use, build a, a right kind of altar for God and use the Asherah pole as the firewood to offer the burnt offering. That's poetic. 
Now you might wonder, is this a very big deal? Because, I mean, in our context, our culture, we just, I mean, we're kind of clueless about how all this stuff worked. But some of the context clues tells us it was a very big deal because Gideon chose to go at night because he wasn't sure he could pull it off in broad daylight. <laughs> he knew what he was getting into with this. So he goes in the darkness and under cover of darkness he does all that God says. The next morning the people wake up and see what's been done and launch a serious investigation as to who did this. And when they find out it was Gideon, they demand his life. And they come to his father and if it wasn't for his father stepping in for him and saying, hey, this is Baal's altar that was torn down, let Baal contend with him. If Baal wants him dead, he ought to be able to kill him himself. Which is pretty nice of your dad, especially after you just tore down his property, right? (laughs) He's defending your life. So, a big deal. See, before Gideon could truly worship God, he had to tear down the idols, the false worship, and his own family. Before Israel could be delivered, God's chosen deliverer had to do some housekeeping first. Before they could take care of the enemies on the outside, they had to take care of the enemies on the inside. And I think that will preach for us today. This message is for Christians. You might think a message on idolatry to be about the world. But this message is for Christians just as we're looking at God's people that God's dealing with here. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're off the hook. (laughs) You get to just tune in and watch the rest of us get a little uncomfortable. We as Christians sometimes just as Israel let the cultures around them influence them sometimes the church Christians let the world around us influence us don't we and the things that the world around us worships that we're bombarded with every day day in and day out make its way into the church sometimes make its way into the lives of Christians and in, a, in an age where they're, they're kind of faceless gods, like we were saying, it's easy to find ourselves pulled to worship the things that this world worships. The prosperity. The power. Sensual pleasures. All the things that our world teaches us in a million different ways are the things that deserve to be worshipped. Are the things where true happiness is found. And it's easy for us to get there. But the thing is, the result of that is, is not ever a good thing. And we wind up in situations where we have brokenness in our life 
Relationships broken. Hearts broken. Finances broken. So many families broken. And we wonder why. And we cry out to God to fix those things. But sometimes before God can fix the situation, He needs us to do some housekeeping. Before we can take care of the enemy on the outside, we have to take care of the enemy on the inside. Before we can deal with the the problems that were caused because we were worshiping other things, we have to tear down the idols in our lives. But we just want God to fix it. (laughs) And God's saying, let's get to the root of the problem. Sometimes we as Christians, we wonder, you know, we go through seasons where we feel like we lost that, that joy that we had when we were first saved. Or that sense of God's presence. And we say, where are you, God? And we look around at the church and we wonder, why isn't the church operating the way it should? The way it seems like it should when I read God's word. And the way God seemed to hope that it would. And why do we get bogged down in, in all these petty details sometimes and we miss out on the the mission and the purpose and the point and sometimes there can be a lot of different reasons for those but one of those reasons is idolatry that creeps into our lives and we wonder why we don't sense the presence of God might be partly because we're worshipping other gods we wonder why our, our joy is gone Because we're not finding our joy in God alone anymore. We're trying to find it in things that can't possibly provide that kind of joy. So yes, there are seasons in life where even the most faithful of Christians is going to feel distant from God. I mean, Jesus had moments like that. But sometimes, when we feel like, God, where are you in my life? I... I'm having a lot of doubts. I'm having just this sense of distance from you. One of the things we need to check and take inventory of in our lives is, is there anything that's coming between me and God? Is there anything in my life that's taking precedent over God? Or that I've put up at the same level with God? Because God says He is God alone and there is no other. And we cannot worship anyone but Him. He alone deserves that one place in our life. Timothy Keller has a book, Judges for You, that is kind of a study of judges, and I thought this was so appropriate. Gideon is essentially being told here to make God the Lord of every area of life. We're not to add anything to Jesus Christ as a requirement for being happy. We're not to use God to get what we really want, but we are to see and make God the one we really want. So I want to ask you, where are you seeking happiness more than in God? Where are you seeking happiness more than you seek it in God? And this is on one of your... You've got two uh, little 
inserts in your bulletin today. The first one, if you want to fill in the blanks, where are you seeking happiness more than you seek it in God? And that is a good way of, of thinking that kind of helps us arrive at the next question, at an answer to the next question that says, what idol do you need to tear down today? I was reminded as I was thinking about this message this morning of a story I heard about Jim Cimbala, who's the pastor at Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York. And the story tells about this young couple that was getting married that came and he wanted them, they wanted him to pray a prayer of blessing over their life together, their marriage. And he said to them, he knew He knew them. He knew their situation. And he said to them, You're asking me to pray that God would bless your relationship when you're not doing your relationship God's way. He said, It can't possibly work that way. I can't ask God to bless something when you're not doing it His way. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. God's blessings are more often than not tied to doing things God's way. And when we do things God's way, there's blessings that come with that. But he can't just negate the negative consequences of the choices that we make. The choices, the sin choices that we make in our life, when we reject God's way for our own ways and for the world's ways, they have natural consequences that play out. And I just thought that was a powerful story that he was willing to say to them, I love you, but I can't pray for God to bless something that he's already specifically said that he can't bless and that's only going to cause trouble and not good in your life. So when we find ourselves in brokenness, when we find ourselves feeling distant from God, one of the things that we need to do is to do some inventory. Discover what idols might have cropped up in our life. And tear them down. And build in their place an altar of true worship to our God. Where we remind ourselves and we proclaim to God and to fellow believers when appropriate that we are making God the one source of our worship, the one place where we put our hope, our trust, the one place where we seek happiness and fulfillment in this life. Do you want peace in your life? Who doesn't? Let's tear down the altars. Do you want joy and a sense of happiness in your life? Tear them down. Do you want to begin to heal the brokenness in your life? And to stop leaving wreckage in the wake of your path in life? Tear down the, tear down the idols. 
These are all different things for different ones of us, aren't they? I mean, we all have the things that we're drawn to, that we struggle with. A bent, I guess, that we're born with as, as in a fallen world, as fallen people. And some of us, we really struggle with just pleasures. And we feel like we've got to have, you know, the recreation or the hobby or the social life or you name it to be happy. I remember, I mean, just when I was in college, you know, I remember me and my roommate sitting around saying, we've got to get a life. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of people who feel like, yeah, I've got to get a life. And they have this vision of what a life looks like. And a lot of times that vision of what a life looks like is something that the world has created and they've shown you in TV shows and they've shown you in movies and they've shown you in advertisements and billboards here's what it looks like to have an abundant awesome life you know it's about who you hang out with or it's about where you hang out or it's about whether you even hang out or are you sitting around at home like a lame-o <laughs> loser right but God has a whole different definition than that so for some of us that's our idol. For some of us, it's money and stuff. For some of us, it's, it's, it's power and position. Or even beauty that we can use to control someone else. There's a lot of different ways that we worship idols. And of course, as we talked about last week, with just the issues of sexual immorality in our culture... That's a huge one. And we know just statistically that there's folks in this room who are struggling with that. Whether it be pornography or you name it. And these are real issues, not just out in the world, but they've crept their way into the church too many times. And then we wonder what's wrong. It's time to tear down the idols. To kind of conclude things here, I just want to read to you. And you don't have to look at it. Maybe even just close your eyes and try to shut out any distractions. I'm just going to read a few verses from Romans 6. And I want it to pull together what we did back there in the baptistry today with what we're talking about here. And this is Paul writing to the church in Rome. Again, talking to the church, not to the world. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of yourself to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead. Did you catch that? We talk about and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. 
But in baptism, we identify not only with the death of Christ, but with the resurrection of Christ. And as those who are alive from the dead, that's you and me, Christians, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons or instruments for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you're not under law but under grace. I mentioned this last week with the context of the same-sex marriage thing and go back and listen to the whole thing for full context, but sometimes we get so worked up about what the world is doing. And I wonder why we don't get that worked up about what the church is doing sometimes. We've unpopularized the passages that talk about confessing our sins one to the other. Most of us would sooner die than turn to our neighbor right now and tell them our latest sin problem. (laughs) We've lost that. But at the very least today, we can begin by thinking about that question. Where am I seeking happiness more than I seek it in God? What idol do I need to tear down today? And there's this card that says, save this card for the... For after the message. And I just want you to reflect a little bit. Maybe you already have been as we've been talking about this. Is there anything in your life that might be considered an idol? Where you're seeking happiness more than you're seeking it in God. Or right alongside with God. And consider writing that down on this card. I'm going to play a video for you that's going to be kind of our response song. Soak that in. Soak in the message, the powerful message of this song. And when it's done, I'm going to come back up and talk about this card a little bit more. But reflect and listen. We've got this card. As you've reflected on it, have you thought of anything that you could write down on there? If you haven't done so, you can write it down now. And I just thought as as uh, we don't do this sort of thing all the time, but I just thought as a, sometimes it helps to do something physically, you know. And I just thought as as a as a statement of saying we want to tear down the idols in our lives that we're dealing with as a church, and we want to proclaim as that song just so powerfully did that I'll worship only we. That Cypress Street Church of God will worship only at the feet of Jesus. That maybe we could together tear these slips. We may not be able to physically go down and tear down an altar today, but we can tear these things in half. And so if you would, if you've got something written on there, just grab it in your hands. I'm going to count to three here in just a second. And we're going to tear these things. And maybe we can make a nice ripping sound in here as we tear these down. I'll give you just a moment as you, um, if some of you finish writing stuff down. 
And let me, in fact, voice a prayer as Kenny comes up and, and Allison comes up and Jeb comes up to lead us in a song and take our offering and all that. Let's pray together and then we'll do this. Father, thank you for baptism that reminds us of who we were before you and who we are now in you. God, we confess the idols that we've let creep into our hearts. Holy Spirit, help us put to death these things of the flesh. These things of this world. These things that have no place in comparison to you. Help us tear down the idols that steal what is yours. That rob us of the life you intend for us. Pray this in the mighty name of Jesus who makes all this possible. We say together, Amen.